0: Paul says, what shall we say then, that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. And whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Father, we ask for faith even in our hearts this morning as we open the word of God together. That you would give us the ability to believe even now that you actually want to speak to us. That you want to say something personally to us individually through this portion of your word that is living and powerful. And like a two-edged sword, Lord, let it divide deep into our hearts and speak to us the things of God and the things that we need to hear and that you want to say to us. So, Lord, bless your word. We pray for your spirit's ministry as we study it. Prepare us and teach us, we ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. Now, what do you think perhaps could be the most important question that you could ask yourself? I think that could be boiled down to one simple question that has to be the top priority, and that's this. It's five words. Am I right with God? I can't think of any question that's more important for a human being to ask themselves and to make sure they get the answer to than that question. Am I right with God? With God. And it's important for us to both know and remember that there is as well a right way and a wrong way to be able to seek after that reality of being right with God. In fact, that is exactly what our scriptures we're looking at are addressing this morning. If you remember the backdrop of Romans chapter 9 thus far, Paul has been emphasizing and proving what we call the sovereignty of God. And we said last time that the sovereignty of God is that God has the power and the right and the freedom to act however he wills to. He's God. That's his prerogative. He's entitled to that. And he was showing in chapter 9 how God's sovereignty, particularly related to spiritual and eternal things, and how that therefore directly affected God's, remember, election were choosing of the nation of israel to be his chosen people to work among how god gave them corresponding spiritual privileges the law and the priesthood and the covenants and even remember god gave to the nation of israel the privilege of being the national line through which the messiah the savior his son jesus christ would come into this world to provide salvation for mankind yet despite all those things Only remember a remnant of the Jews actually believed upon and received Jesus when he came. In fact, the majority of the Jewish people rejected Jesus. And thus, of course, we know historically then from scriptures and history that God then opened the door of faith and salvation through Christ to the gentiles and we say the word gentiles we're talking about anyone who is of non-jewish descent that god then opened the door of faith and salvation to the gentiles and as a result the church began to swell with great numbers of gentile people getting saved it began with the jews but in a very short time the gentile people overflowed the ranks of the church and remember that bothered the jews this irritated them, one, because of their sort of social prejudice towards the Gentile people, uh, as well as the fact that they somewhat in their spiritual arrogance felt somewhat as if they were entitled to the things of God just because of their national line being a part of Abraham's family and the fact that God did choose them initially as his chosen and elect people. So because of that, they sort of began to get sort of a sense of spiritual entitlement, of superiority, and this irritated them. So Paul addressed that struggle they were dealing with there in chapter 9 by reminding them of the sovereignty of God. That's why Paul was talking about that. He wanted to remind the Jews, listen, as it bothers you that, the gent- are being saved realize if it wasn't for God's sovereignty no one would be saved because what he was trying to point out is no one deserves heaven no one deserves God's forgiveness it is all God's mercy and if it weren't for the sovereign fact that God overrules and chooses to be merciful nobody would ever get saved And that that's something that they needed to remember themselves and how Israel's election and their rejection even of Jesus was not a shock to God because God's sovereign. And God foreknew that that would even take place because he knows all before it happens. And God wasn't left sort of scrambling for a recovery plan. After the Jews rejected him, and when God opened the door of faith to the Gentiles, and many started getting saved and flooding into the church, that was not God's alternative plan to what he originally intended, as if somehow God went, boy, that business plan is is botched so... I better come up with an alternative plan. Let me send the gospel now to the Gentiles. That's not true. All of those things work together as a part of God's sovereign plan. He foreknew these things and he ultimately intended it to unfold that way. So both the Jews' rejection and the great reception of the Gentiles to the salvation that was offered in Christ really all happened within the sovereign plan of God. Now, as Paul continues on in our verses this morning, beginning in verse 30, he now in these next verses is identifying the cause, you could say, or the reason why the Jews rejected salvation through God's Son, Jesus Christ. Look with me again in verse 30. Paul says, what shall we say then to the things he's been talking about? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to the righteousness of He says, even the righteousness of faith, but Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness. He says, why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. So Paul here is identifying how the Gentiles entered into right relationship with God. And he's also identifying here why many of the Jewish people when Christ came did not. And what Paul does here is he boils it down to simply saying it is basically the distinct difference between the opposite way that they both chose to relate to God. And he contrasts here the opposite ways that the Jew tried to relate to God and the Gentiles sought to relate to God. And he says that became the distinct difference. The reason the Jews rejected, the reason the Gentiles were receptive was the way differently that they chose to relate to God. He contrasts, notice in our verses, verse 30, he contrasts the righteousness of faith. And then in verse 31 there, he talks about the law of righteousness. So the righteousness of faith is a righteousness that comes through a person's faith. That's the idea. The law of righteousness is basically... Pursuing righteousness through keeping laws or rules or regulations. Now, when the Bible is using the term righteousness here in verses 30 and 31, it's implying the idea there of becoming right with God. So this is the the implication here when we're reading the word the righteousness of faith, pursuing the law of righteousness. It's implying here the idea of in your mind becoming right with God or becoming acceptable to God. In a certain way. And he talks about both here the glorious discovery of the Gentile people, how the Gentiles, he says there in verse 30, they being sort of naive to many of the uh, spiritual things that Israel knew. The Gentiles were naive to the Mosaic law, They, they, they didn't understand or know those things. They were naive to the rituals and the sacrifices. And Paul says, verse 30, they weren't even really pursuing, he says. Righteousness, or they weren't even really trying per se to make themselves right with God. In their spiritual naivety, they they didn't have a checklist. They weren't observing a religious checklist of the rituals and the ordinances and the sacrifices. They didn't have anything like that to work with. But yet, Paul says is the profound thing. Yet, though they weren't checking off their religious checklist of ordinances observances, he says, verse thirty. But yet, they actually, lo and behold, were the ones who attained to the righteousness of God, even the righteousness of faith. The idea is the reason is because they exercise simple faith in the truth of God, that they understood they were sinful. They understood that they were deserving of of God's wrath because of their sin and offensive things that they did before God as a people. And they simply believe that Jesus Christ was who he said he was. That he was the Son of God, that he was the Savior sent into the world, and they believed that, as Jesus said, that if they came to Jesus, that he alone could and would save them. And so they, with great receptivity and responsiveness, understood, like childlike faith and simplicity hey, we're sinners that's the savior and he alone is the only one that can save us we can't save ourselves we can't fix ourselves and so because of that simple trust in christ they were receiving a righteous standing before god and he speaks it then in verse 31 in contrast of the grievous error and mistake of israel paul says of israel verse 31 notice that they pursued he says the law of righteousness And this is why they were missing the mark. They tried to become right before God or righteous before God through their religious activity, through their efforts of keeping ordinances and rituals and and requirements that they knew as a part of the traditions of their religious system. And as they were working diligently as they were, they felt that as they observed such things, that's what made them right with God. So if we do observe these things, if we do follow and and participate in these rituals, then that will make us right with God. That's what they believed. They had a sense in their mind that if they were devout in their religious routine, that that would help them attain to being right with God. and, And that's what was required. And then God would accept them. If they were good boys and good girls and did what they were supposed to and didn't do what they weren't supposed to and that was their mindset and yet the Bible says verse 31 though they were pursuing it through the law he says they never attained the very righteousness they were looking for. In other words, they never became right with God. The question Paul asked verse 32, look at it, he says, why? Why didn't they become right with God? They were working so hard religiously verse 32 because they did not seek it by faith but as it were by the works of the law so why didn't they attain a right standing before god paul says verse 32 very clearly they were seeking the right thing they get a gold star for that but paul says the problem is they were seeking the right thing but they were going about it the wrong way and People do that in all different spheres of life, not just in spiritual life. They were seeking the right thing. They wanted to be right with God. They genuinely, he says, were pursuing God. They they genuinely wanted to go to heaven, but Paul's just saying, but their approach was wrong. their their course that they were on was not the right direction and they weren't seeking it by faith in jesus christ the way god's plan intended but instead they were seeking it through their own personal works and religious law keeping and when you study the gospels if you're familiar with reading them is it not true you see that struggle don't you all throughout the gospel records between Jesus and the Jews and the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It's a constant recurring struggle. The Jews are there, you see, and they're, aren't they? They're, they're always tightly clinging to their religious observances, whether it was the Sabbath or the aspects of the Mosaic law, because they felt that's what made them righteous before God. And so they were clinging to those things and they believed it granted them relationship with God and that was what gave them access to heaven. And here comes Jesus, the Son of God, stepping into the scene on earth and Jesus came revealing himself to be the Son of God and revealing himself as the promised Savior who was sent from the Father in heaven. And then what did Jesus do? You read his words so many times. He kept telling them again and again to do what? keep working hard, keep working on that Sabbath, keep working on those, Jesus didn't do it. He kept saying to them again and again, believe on me. Believe upon me whom the Father has sent. Believe me because he kept saying, I am the way to get to heaven. I'm the way. You know, you read passages, maybe if you're a note taker, I'll give you one or two to jot down here, time doesn't permit to cover. But for example, John chapter 5, verse 39 to 47. There, basically, Jesus says to the religious leaders, you diligently search the scriptures. Because you think that in them, in your study and your ritual observance of religious traditions, you think that in them you have eternal life, but he says, but you fail to see they testify of me. And you won't come to me that you may have life. And then in the very next chapter, John 6, around verse 28 and 29, they come to Jesus. Again, same kind of pattern. What must we do to do the works of God? Well, that, that's a good question. Hey, what, what works does God want from us? Hey, we're willing to work. We're hard workers. We work our fields. We work. Just tell us, what does God want? What does God require of us? What are the works of God? Jesus said, this is the work of God. Singular, of God. What is it? Give how much? How much the charity do we got to give? How many good deeds do we got to do? What's the one work? We got it. We got our pen in hand. We're ready. He, he said, this is the one work. Believe upon him who the Father has sent. And you see this continuous process where Jesus kept telling them to believe upon him, yet in pride and religious stubbornness, The Jewish people kept on continuously through the works of the law rather than through faith trying to pursue righteousness. Now, what is the difference of those two approaches of relating to God? What's the genuine difference between trying to become righteous by faith and trying to become righteous by works of the law? Well, I think it's simply this. To become righteous by faith is to receive what you need by someone else supplying it for you. It's to believe that you don't have what's necessary. You can't supply or produce on your own through your own efforts, works, determination, achievements, that you can't produce what's necessary to be satisfying to a holy God and to meet the standard required to have access into heaven. So it means, therefore, that somebody else has to supply it for you and you have to receive it by faith. You have to believe I can't and therefore someone else has to do it for me. And ultimately to believe that Jesus is the only one in humility that can give you that help, that can offer you his righteousness and his forgiveness and salvation. Now, to become righteous through the works of the law, in contrast, is to try and earn and achieve what you need. Because you believe through the works of the law, it's a wrong belief, but it's believing that you can supply for yourself what is necessary to satisfy God. It's to believe that through my performance, my efforts, my achievements, my own checklist, or maybe the checklist of a religious tradition I came from that they told me, that's the checklist. And, and so they've given me the devil. If I just follow that checklist, I'm all right. right. I'm and, and it's to try and earn and achieve through observances and routines and rituals and good works through your own efforts to provide and then produce to God, hey, here's what I've done and I'm trusting that's sufficient because that's the checklist. So therefore, I'm good. You'll receive me and you'll embrace me. And it's to believe that You don't have to receive something from someone else because you really believe that you can produce it yourself and through the works of the law, you can offer to God what you've done and therefore you refuse to accept help. Here's why. You really don't think you need help. So people produce their religious works and they don't respond and receive Jesus' salvation for them because they don't really think they need that. Because they think that what they're doing is sufficient to offer to God. Well, Jesus came telling people what? That he was sent to supply for them what they couldn't produce on their own. When you read the statements of Jesus, he made it so emphatically clear that he came to do and supply what was necessary to bring sinful man into right relationship again with a holy God. Jesus came and he continuously made radical statements referring, for example, to God as my father. Continuously. He would say, It's the Father who sent me, that he was not just the son of God, but he also was God, the son and that he was sent directly from heaven, that God sent him as an extension of himself in the form of the son. John five, Jesus says, I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. And then Jesus would make these kind of radical statements that he alone could offer and supply what was necessary. For example, John fourteen six. many of us know it. Jesus said, I am the way the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. That's exclusive. Not through any laws or any routine or religious activity or any system of religion but he said, no, I am the way and no one comes except through me. That's pretty exclusive. Then Jesus would say things like John 6, 47, most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me, not in himself, not in a religious system, not in my works that seem pretty good, who believes in me, Jesus says, has everlasting life. John 10, Jesus said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Now the quandary was with the Jewish people in Israel at that time, because of what they felt in their efforts of works through the law, they were looking for just a political and a military Messiah and deliverer. Because they didn't think they needed a spiritual Messiah. They felt that they were on the right track and okay, and therefore they weren't looking for a spiritual Savior that Jesus came to be, to die for the sins of the world. And therefore, when Jesus made claims to be God, and when Jesus represented himself as the mediator between God and man, the only one who could bring man back into right relationship with God... Th- that because of really understand somewhat of a spiritual arrogance and self-righteousness that disturbed them how could you claim to be God and why would you say we need to be brought in the right relationship with God we're Jews we have Judaism we have the law and the prophets and the sacrifices and the priesthood nobody else has that we have the system how could you tell us our system isn't good enough anymore God gave us our system and so it, it caused such a mental quandary for them that many of them began to stumble because there was a spiritual arrogance somewhat that had developed in the midst of it. Look what Paul goes on to say, verse 32. He says, they stumbled at the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. And whoever believes on him will not be put to shame, So the Jews stumbled over the reality of Jesus coming as the Savior that they needed. And they stumbled over the concept that Jesus was now the cornerstone, the foundation stone of the establishment of a new covenant and a new thing that God was doing, which was to establish the church that would be made up of Jews and Gentiles, men and women, and all who called upon the name of the Lord and looked to Jesus for salvation. And because Jesus didn't fit in the mind of the Jew with what they expected a Savior and a Messiah should be for them, they were offended by Jesus and stumbled over him. But again, keep in mind, even their stumbling over Jesus and rejection of Jesus was not a surprise to God. It was not something that shocked God. It didn't ruin His purposes. God foresaw what would happen before it ever took place. That's what Paul's alluding to here in verse 33 when he quotes for us from Isaiah chapter 8, look at it, verse 14, saying that God declared, behold, I'm going to lay in Zion and God said, it's going to be a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. In other words, God speaking there prophetically of His Son Jesus Christ, it's a messianic, prophecy knew that when he sent jesus that he would become to the jewish people initially a stumbling stone and a rock of offense that they'd become offended and stumble spiritually over who jesus was now sadly would you agree there are many people today that are still struggling with the same exact things that we're looking at here right in these verses there are many, many people today that are still seeking to be right with God and they want to go to heaven, but their approach is wrong. They're just sincerely going about it the wrong way. They want to be right with God and they, they genuinely want to go to heaven, but their approach is wrong. They're trying to accomplish it through a religious system or righteous efforts or good works or what they have been taught even is the way to do it rather than what the Bible says clearly indicates is the right and correct way through God's Son, Jesus Christ. And there are many people who are doing that. But the problem with that, see, is no matter how hard you try, you'll never be perfect. And no matter how hard you try and how good you behave, you can't erase all the wrong things that you did in the past by your good works presently. And there are people today, are there not, who are stumbling and tripping over Jesus as the exclusive way to get to heaven. And it just sincerely irritates them. They actually become offended hearing things like, what do you mean I'm sinful and I'm not right with God? I have been way more religious than you've been your whole life. And you're telling me I'm sinful? You're telling me I'm not right with God? And it's difficult to swallow. It's offensive to hear. Listen, you can't save yourself. And all those religious observances that you have done and are still doing, they're not going to get you to heaven. And that's hard to swallow. And in religious pride somewhat, people actually become upset and offended to realize When you try and tell them, look, you have to ask Jesus to save you. You have to set that aside as not worthy enough and ask Jesus to do for you what you can't do for yourself. But human pride struggles with that. It's stumbled and offended over that. So what happens? People keep tripping over Jesus. And well-meaning, even religious people keep tripping over Jesus like a stumbling stone because of that difficulty to understand and just accept those realities well paul gives the answer how to become right with god in the end of verse 32 he says whoever believes on him will not be put to shame so again the only way to eliminate the shame of our sin which we all commit the disgrace of being shameful in god's sight paul says there is to believe on jesus To choose to believe upon him for who he is. Look what Paul says as he begins the 10th chapter. He says, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel, notice he says, is that they may be saved. In other words, just like Paul alluded to back in chapter 9, he again emphasizes, we saw it in chapter 9 that his heart burden was to see Israel be saved. I think Paul's trying to say in chapter 10, verse 1 there, look, I'm not saying these things to try and be offensive to somebody spiritually or religiously. I'm not embittered towards the Jews, Paul's saying. I'm not angry towards them. They're my countrymen. I love them. Paul says, in fact, the truth is, I'm deeply concerned for their souls. My heart's desire and prayers that they would get saved. I'm not saying this to anger them. I'm saying this because I want to enlighten them. I want to help them. I want to see them come to Christ. He says, my heart's desire for Israel is that they might be saved. Paul had a deep longing for the Jewish people to get saved. And notice that his deep longing for their salvation translated, he says, verse one there, into then prayer to God that they would be saved. Now, I think this is a beautiful thing. Paul realized salvation is a work of God. It's a work of God. It's something that must happen vertically between God and a human being. So Paul realizing, look, I could say all the right things. You can't get a more doctrinally sound book than the book of Romans of the plan of God for salvation explained so exhaustively and so clearly. But Paul still understood, look, I can say everything accurately, but if God does not supernaturally intervene in the heart, soul, and mind of a human being... They will walk around in darkness their whole life because religion, even worse than living a you know a brazen immoral crazy off the wall wicked life, religion is one of the greatest opiates to a human soul because they they feel i'm okay, I am okay i'm not like that guy on the street i'm okay, I have some morals, I have some religion, and so Paul says i got to pray that God would open people's eyes. It's the only way they're going to get saved. It's the only way that will happen. And Paul had a deep desire to see people saved. First Timothy 2, Paul says, God, our Savior, desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. God desires people to be saved. We have to ask ourselves, have we embraced God's desire? Do we desire people to be saved, though? Many times I don't have the desire I wish that people would be saved as strongly as God certainly does. And I have to ask myself, we have to ask ourselves, are there in our lives certain people that we desire to see saved? Are there people that we genuinely have a burden for, that that we, we just really want to see them saved? Is that one of the strong desires in our heart? Let's be honest, we have lots of desires in our hearts. We have desires for lots of things, wishes and wants and strong desires. But one of our greatest desires ought to be to see people get saved. And that should then translate into us doing something about it. First and foremost, what? Praying. Praying for their salvation. Saying, I've got to pray because it's a supernatural thing to see somebody get saved. And that's the way that it begins. Is pleading with God for their soul. God, open their eyes. Work on their heart convince them, make it clear to them, Lord, I can't convince them with my words, but God, speak to them. Don't give up on them. Keep working on their heart. Wrestle with them when they lay in their bed at night. God, bring your word back to their remembrance and and, and just praying and asking God to do that. I love this, that Paul's desire translated into Paul's prayer. Let me just say something as a sidelight. If we truly desire something, we'll pray about it. I truly believe that. And I say this because a lot of times I talk to to Christians, and I don't mean this critically, I'm just saying this honestly as a sidelight, and people will express a heart's desire and burn. I wish this would happen or that would happen, and maybe it's not even in relation to salvation, and I think to myself, I hear you saying you have this strong desire, but are you praying about it? I I wish wish this so bad, I wish this so bad, I wish this so bad. Okay, so we're going to have days of prayer. Where's the person who had that really strong desire for that to happen? Why don't they come pray? Is it maybe they don't believe God will do anything? Or is it maybe really the desire is not that strong? I I don't know. And I don't say that critically. And I'm not trying to, in a sense, be condemning towards people who don't come to prayer, meetings that you can't pray at home. But see, the genuine desire translates into prayer. Because it's, God, unless you do this, you've got to do this. God, I have the desire for it, but only you can do it. Only you can bring the power to make it come to pass. And Paul had this heart towards salvation. I think what a neat thing! Take out the word Israel there in Paul's words, and and put in somebody's name. Put in put in some people group that God, my heart's desire and prayer to you for Bob, not you. If there's a Bob in this room this morning, or or you know, for, for this people group for the for the people of South Jersey. For you know, for a certain subculture or community, God, that's my prayer that those people, that that person would get saved. Just a, a beautiful thing. Well, Paul elaborates then over the stumbling of the Jews who he wanted to be saved in the next verses. He says, for I bear them witness, he's talking about the, the people of Israel now, that they have, he says, a zeal for God. Look what Paul says. But it's not according to knowledge. Again, many of the people of Israel, they did. They had a fervor for God. They were passionate in their pursuit of God and the things of their spiritual life. They were devout and committed to the Mosaic Law. They hand-copied their scriptures on scrolls. They were very dedicated and zealous in maintaining their doctrinal beliefs. They they would make great personal sacrifices to observe their uh, rituals and to keep their ordinances. At one time, Paul himself was a Pharisee. He was one of them that was very zealous, was he not? If you know his history... Paul was very zealous for the Mosaic law and maintained a disciplined religious lifestyle, but yet Paul says, but, it, but it's not according to knowledge. It's zeal, but it's zeal for the wrong thing. It's zeal in the wrong direction. The problem is a lack of proper understanding of God's plan through Jesus. The Jews were religiously committed, but in the wrong things. They were zealous in their pursuit of God, but the problem was, is that they were just headed in the wrong direction. They had the wrong map, if you would. They were running down the wrong course in error in their spiritual ideas. And what the Bible is saying to us here is this. Hear me. Sincerity is not enough. Strong efforts and determination. It's not enough because people can be sincere in life and be sincerely wrong. People can work really hard at something, whether it's a business or trying to do something, and you can work really hard, but yet be working about it the wrong way. You know, I haven't played golf in many, many years. I, I did it when I was But you can swing a golf club really hard and hit the dirt and hit the grass and, you know, shoot balls. You can... But I'm swinging really hard, man. In fact, I'm working at the gym so I can swing harder. But if your form is wrong... <laughs> It don't matter how hard you swing if you don't swing the right way. Well, the same kind of thing is true in relation to spiritual life. People can have great fervor and zeal, but if it's in the wrong pursuit, it doesn't amount to anything. It ends up in the wrong place if you lack accurate knowledge. Again, many Muslim people are very sincere. They're very zealous in their beliefs of Islam. People are zealous in... You know, pseudo-Christian cults, Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, I mean, they come knocking on our doors, wanting to tell us their doctrinal beliefs and, and evangelize their cause. Sincere, zealous, but lacking the knowledge that goes along with it. And this is the idea. Many times people will say, don't they? Listen, Hey, be careful. When it comes to spiritual things, as long as everybody's sincere in their beliefs... It'll be okay in the end. You just got to be sincere in what you believe and it'll be okay. The Bible says that's not true. That's not true because you can be sincere but yet not have the truth of information. And Paul says this was the case with the Jews. They had zeal for God but not according to knowledge for they being ignorant of God's righteousness, he says, verse three, seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to, To the righteousness of God. So Paul explains here further what he means from verse two, that the Jews in spiritual ignorance, Paul says in verse three now, this is what was happening in that zeal that didn't have accurate knowledge is he says they felt that they could establish or supply their own righteousness before God. They believed, as we said earlier, that they could provide what was sufficient and needed to be right with God. And as a result of that, Paul says, they weren't submitting to what God said was necessary to be right. See, it's a great great quandary that we are sinful and fall so continually short of the standards that are required to have access before a holy God in heaven... And that our righteousness, even when we try and provide it, will never be enough. That's the problem. Isaiah 64 verse 6 says, but we're all like an unclean thing and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. In other words, when we provide our best performance, the standard is so high, we're still looking like... A person wearing dirty garments trying to get into a well-dressed affair when it comes to entering into heaven. The Bible then speaks of a righteousness that God supplies to become acceptable to him. That God supplies the righteousness. Notice he speaks there in verse 3 of God's righteousness, the righteousness of God. This is the idea here. The Jews were seeking to be right before God, but they weren't going about it the right way. They were trying to establish their own righteousness. Here, there's our own righteousness. That should be sufficient to get into heaven. And in so doing, they weren't submitting to the righteousness that God supplies through his son, Jesus Christ. And therefore, they were missing the mark. And again, many well-meaning and religious people are doing the same thing that verses 2 and 3 describe right there. Many people who are in a religious lifestyle are sincere, but lacking proper knowledge and truth. They're trying to present their own righteousness to God. And God's saying, listen, you need to submit to the truth that what you supply will never be enough. But I've supplied the righteousness you need through my son, Jesus Christ. And the only way to get into heaven's banquet is if you let me clothe you. And you submit by forsaking your own efforts once for all and receiving what God offers through his son, Jesus Christ. We'll close with verse four. Look what he says. It takes us where we're going next week. For Christ is the end. The end of the law, notice, the idea is the culminating point, the fulfillment for righteousness, see it there, to everyone who believes. Christ is the fulfillment. Jesus came to fulfill what we could not in the law so that righteousness could be supplied to every person who believes. To all of us who believe, man, there is nothing, I tell you, more, I think, exhausting than to feel like you got to maintain a certain standard of performance to become right with God or to stay right with God. And God's Spirit is simply saying, look, stop trying to establish your own righteousness. Just believe in who Jesus is and what he's done for you and Rest. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I shall give you rest.